And so he is open-handed with his nephew when he and Lot have to split up. He's not looking for the best part uh, for himself. He is rescuing people who have been captured in war. He's interceding for a wicked city. And you're recognizing that he is really starting to believe what God has said, that God would bless him so that what? So that he is a blessing to others. And you see him then acting out his faith in the way that he engages other people, which makes today's passage really odd. Because in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham is not a blessing. In, we're not seeing here Abraham the man of faith. Rather, we are seeing a man of fear. And it's fear that drives Abraham to lie to Abimelech about his wife, Sarah. Now, you and I have both lied. We all understand what it's like to lie, and we understand how fear is so tied into lying. What, how does that work? You, you come to this crossroads in your life, and you realize that you have an option either to tell the truth or to lie. And so you look down the road, just a little bit of telling the truth, and you see that, man, there, there's something there that I might lose if I tell the truth, and I don't want to lose that. And so you do what? You lie to protect that thing that you really, really want. If you have children, you've seen this in action. If you've been a child, you've done this in action. Okay, you can think about those times where you, know, you, you were playing and it was time to brush your teeth, and, and so you were asked or you asked your child, did you brush your teeth yet? And the answer is what? It's yes, because I want to protect the fun that I'm having. Or maybe you have someone in your home who's uh, decided to have a couple cookies before dinner, but they know that if they cop to that, then they're not going to be able to have dessert afterward. And so when you ask them, did you, have, did you take cookies, they say no, even though you can find cookie crumbs in their teeth. What happens as we get older? We get a little bit more sophisticated, but it's the same underlying thing uh, that, that's taking place there. Older people think that something bigger is at stake, and so they lie. I can think here about the college student who told her parents that she wasn't dating a young man anymore because she knew that they didn't like him and that if she told them she really was, they'd pressure her to no longer see him. She's afraid that if she tells the truth, it's going to be the end of her relationship. Or I can think about the young man whose wife left him, but he continued to let everybody believe that they were still together because he thought, if other people know that she left me, it, it's going to ruin my image. It's going to ruin my reputation. That's more important to me than actually telling the truth. This is what people do when they lie. They look down the road. They see something that is threatened, something that they really want, and in that moment, they're afraid. They're afraid of losing that thing, and in that moment, it's very easy to lie. Abraham, the man of faith, demonstrates that today. God has promised to bless him. And in chapter 20, he's afraid that he might lose his life. And what is he thinking in that moment? He's not thinking that the blessing of God is so strong that it can keep me alive. Instead, his faith wavers, and he thinks, I, I might be dead tomorrow unless I lie. And so he assumes, rightly or wrongly, that if people know Sarah is his wife, they might try to kill him to get to her. And he figures, if no one knows that she's my wife, there's no reason to kill me. We're just going to tell everybody she's my sister. It's true. Nobody's going to take his life over that. But he doesn't realize that instead of taking away people's interest in Sarah, the opposite actually is going to happen, that their interest is only going to increase, and now there's going to be no reason for them not to be interested. And so what Abraham does with this lie is he sets up a very awkward interaction with Abimelech. Abimelech, the, the king, he's interested in Sarah. He thinks that she's Abraham's sister. He doesn't see any reason not to be interested in her, so he sends for her. 
And there's a backstory there that, that I really want to know about. Scripture doesn't tell you what that is, but, but just think about what you know about Abraham. In chapter 14, you're told that he can put together an army of 318 men, and doesn't sound sizable to us, but in that day was enough to beat four kings who were combined. Abraham is not someone that you just go and take someone from. So you can imagine a little diplomacy going on here. You wonder, what, what did that actually look like? You can imagine Abimelech coming to him saying, hey, Abe, that, um, that's Sarah. She's, uh, she's quite a gal, isn't she? What kind of awkwardness does that leave Abraham? Well, uh, yeah, she, uh, she sure is. So is, um, you know, is she spoken for? Uh, no. Awkward kind of place that, that he has now created for him and Abimelech. You don't know if that kind of conversation took place. But you do know something. You know that Abimelech has no idea what the true nature of their relationship is, that they have each colluded to say, yes, we are brother and sister. And that tells you then that Abraham never spoke up, never set the record straight, never disagreed with the way that things were going, realized that he should have. At some point, it was long past the time where he should have cleared his throat and said, you know, th th this is awkward, um, but I lied. <laughs> She's really my wife. Never did that. And so Abimelech sends for Sarah. Now you can imagine there's another awkward conversation. This one's between Abraham and Sarah. Hey, honey, I got, I, I got some bad news. And then imagine what that's like as he watches her pack and leave the tent to go live with another man. And you start to realize that throughout this process, Abraham's committed to his lie. This is not a spur of the moment, one-off kind of a thing. This is something that he planned in advance, something that he did not back off of, something that he roped Sarah into. And then he had multiple opportunities to walk it back, and he blew past every one of them. What are you starting to understand? You're starting to understand when, that when you combine fear and deception, that's a really, really powerful combination. And when you start down that road, it's really, really hard to stop and to come back the other direction. What is this passage showing you? It shows you a lot about the nature of lies. One of the things that it helps you understand is why lying is so bad. You ever wonder about that? You ever wonder about what's the big deal about lying? What, what, you know, we have these things that we think are so-called little white lies, and you think, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, why does it make the list of the Ten Commandments, the things that thou shalt not? I mean, I've never felt that it was that over the top, like when, when, when I lie. It, it comes so easy. It comes so fast. doesn't seem to be that big a deal. What is the big deal here? Well, you're starting to see that as you watch what Abimelech does. Abraham's lie has done what? It has misrepresented the world to Abimelech. He's created a fantasy world, and he's told Abimelech, this is the way the world really is when the world is really not that way. And so Abimelech doesn't see anything wrong with thinking that Sarah's available. Abraham's lie alters perceptions for Abimelech. Abimelech then acts with respect to that fantastic world, but it's not a real world. She is Abraham's wife. It is a big deal. And as soon as Abimelech understands that reality, he understands that he's in great danger. God comes to him in verse 3, and he says, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. 
And Abimelech does not argue the gravity of the situation. Abimelech is not a modern man with a modern person's sensibilities of intimacy. He doesn't say to God, oh, come off it. Who cares? All right, so she's another man's wife. What's it matter? I mean, it's just sex. It's no big deal. Abimelech doesn't argue that. He knows better. This pre-modern man understands more about the way the world is. He knows that it's not just sex. He knows that it's not okay to be intimate with just anybody. He knows that you can't be intimate with someone who is not yours, someone who is not bound in a covenant with you. He knows that if you are having that kind of intimacy, it's grounds for the death penalty. God declares Abimelech innocent. Abimelech doesn't pay that penalty. But he understands that there's a wrong that's been done here. And Abimelech knows he's on very thin ice, that he has nothing to really guard against here, except he hasn't touched her yet. If God had not stepped in, Abimelech would have forfeited his life. And the reason for that is because of Abraham. Abraham set him up for that. This is where you recognize lies do what? They do not love your neighbor as yourself. They don't create a picture of what the real world is. They create this fantasy world. And in creating that fantasy world, you are inviting other people to act in ways that, in, in a world that doesn't exist. And when you act in a way that, with a world that doesn't exist, that kind of a world can only hurt you. In other words, lies always have a cost, even if in the moment you don't see what that cost is. Abimelech is now seeing the cost. Abraham feeling the cost. Sarah certainly knew the cost. But frankly, this lie has a lot more going for it. Because in a moment, the whole world is about to feel this cost. You're about to feel the cost. Your salvation, my salvation, it's all dependent. It's all at risk here in Abraham's lie. Because God has promised a child to Abraham and to Sarah, through whom many, many countless descendants are going to come. And it's one of those future descendants who's actually going to be the Messiah, one who will save his people from their sins, one who will crush Satan's head. This lie, therefore, puts all of humanity at risk. Because when Sarah leaves Abraham's tent, that promised child is now at jeopardy. And you realize that Abraham didn't what? He, he didn't think very far down the road. He didn't think in ways that he couldn't think. See, lies have a cost in the moment, but they also have a future cost, one that you can't begin to anticipate. His lie potentially is going to cost humanity. His lie, however, also costs God. It takes something away from God. And for that, you have to remember what God is doing when he makes huma humans. When God makes people, he makes them in his image as visible representations of himself on this earth. And so when a human being opens their mouth, you're supposed to get a sense of what God would say in that moment. You're supposed to be hearing, this is how God would respond. These are the kinds of things that God would say. These are the kinds of values that would come out of his mouth. And yet we know from Genesis 3 that that's all been thrown away because Adam and Eve decide, we don't really want God. We want to have a different way. And when they reject God, they also reject their purpose for being here. And they reject God's ways coming out of their mouths. And, and you hear that rejection immediately. Adam and Eve begin to blame shift. Adam says, it's Eve's fault for what I did. Eve says, it's the serpent's fault for what I did. And that one act of rebellion has fundamentally changed them so that they no longer represent God. 
and you start reading through the rest of the book of Genesis, Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and you start to see that same kind of sin, that same kind of rejection just spreading across the globe. And you see its impact in people as they continue to speak in ways that don't represent God. And yet the grace of God is such that he doesn't want that to be the last word on his creation. So you get to Genesis chapter 12, and you are introduced to Abraham. And at first you think, well, he, he's a nobody. He's just like this rootless nomad wandering around in the wilderness. But as you watch what God's doing, God has a special plan for him. I don't know if you caught the word. It's there in verse 7 of chapter 20. God calls him a prophet. God has decided, this is the one who now is supposed to speak for me. You know, a man who's completely unknown, completely unremarkable, but God has decided, through Abraham, I will make myself known. This person now represents me. So if you hear Abraham speak, what are you really hearing? You're hearing what God sounds like. In an important sense, Abraham is the new Adam. He's Adam rebooted. But then this person with such a high calling to be God's representative opens his mouth and he does what? He lies. And he sounds just like the serpent. It sounds just like what happened back in the Garden of Eden. Thousands of years later, Jesus is going to come and he's going to say, Satan's always been a liar. He's a liar from the beginning and he's the father of lies. Here's Abraham, God's new representative, speaking lies, sounding just like the snake. So not only has he put his own family at risk, not only has he put Abimelech and his family at risk, worse than that, he's misrepresenting God to the world around him. And God's plans to have a representative to show who he is in this world are now all scrambled. God's working hard to redeem the, the horror of Eden. Abraham is working to recreate it. That's what makes lying so bad. When you lie, you are engaging in speaking not like the one who made you. You're speaking like the serpent. And lies are easy. You can lie on multiple sides, right? There, there are times where, where lying is what? It's when you tell people things that aren't true. You actively say things that are not true. And so you lie about where you were or who you were with or what you were doing there, and you create that new fantasy for someone else to, vi to view. And it happens in the same way with, that it did with Abraham, in these very mundane details of life. I was in a class one time. A professor was trying to hold a group discussion, and no one was saying very much. And so he looked at all of us, and he asked, did you guys do the reading for this week? And still nobody said very much. <laughs> and so he looks right at me, and he says, how much of the reading did you do? And I looked right back at him, looked in his eyes, and I said, most. <laughs> By which I meant, any day now I'm closing in on about 51%. But I knew that this guy would interpret most to be what? Like 90%. And in that moment, I lied. I actively misrepresented myself to this person. Why? I'm afraid that he's not going to think I'm a good student. I really want that reputation. And so without even thinking about it, in half a second, this word just comes out of my mouth. I misrepresent myself. I misrepresent because I'm an image of God. I misrepresent God in that moment as well. Very easy to misrepresent God and to be a picture of what the serpent is like. You can also misrepresent God, you can also lie by 
passively not saying things that are true. So husbands, perhaps your wife would be hurt, angry, if she knew the internet sites that you visit. And so what? You just don't tell her. And in that moment, you do not give a picture of who you actually are to her. You misrepresent yourself, but because you're an image of God, guess what? You're also misrepresenting God to her. Ladies, maybe you know your husband's going to challenge you over what you spent. So you don't tell him, and you don't use the joint account to do that. And in that moment, what are you doing? You're misrepresenting yourself. You're giving a different picture of who you are, but because you're an image of God, you are also misrepresenting God to your husband. Or let's take it out of spouse relationships. There have been times maybe when your boss thinks that your project's actually going to be done when you said it's going to be done, but you know it's not going to be. And in that moment, you just allow him or her to believe it actually will get done at that point in time, and you are passively misrepresenting truth. You're passively misrepresenting who you are. But because you're an image of God, you're also misrepresenting God to your boss as well. It is so easy to go down the road of the serpent. So easy to take that glorious role that you have as an image of God to be able to represent him and say, I'm not interested today. I'd rather represent the serpent. That's the road that Abraham set himself on as he misrepresented God to Abimelech very common road. You and I both know what that road is like. What's amazing in this passage is how God interacts with him. Now, sometimes in order to really understand, get to get the full impact of what God is doing, sometimes it's helpful to think about, well, what is God not doing? How is God not responding to Abraham? And maybe one of the ways to go about that is to ask, how would you be tempted to respond? Maybe you're a little bit like me. You're tempted to, to let Abraham have it. What do you think you're doing? Look at all I'm trying to do to rescue the human race, and look at all that I've promised you personally. If I didn't think that I could keep you alive, I certainly would not have sworn on my life to give you a child and then to give you a land for your family to live in. Where's the faith that you're so well known for? You know, if you had an ounce of steel in your spine, we wouldn't be in this mess right now. It's one option. Maybe you're not the exploding kind. Maybe you're more the throw your hands up and sigh in frustration kind. So you say, oh, okay, Adam, uh, uh, Abraham, you've made your bed. Now you're just going to have to lie in it, obviously alone for now. It's time you felt some consequences for what you've been doing. Maybe losing Sarah is what you needed to have happen in order to wake you up. Or maybe you have a little bit more of an edge. You know what? I don't have time, Abraham, for this nonsense. I have a world to save. And instead of making it better, you're making it worse. You just gave me more work to do. You know what? I'm going to put you on the back shelf. I'm going to go find somebody else who can and will represent me. And God doesn't do a single one of those things. He doesn't lay into Abraham, doesn't bawl him out, doesn't go and belittle him, doesn't berate him, doesn't try to get him to man up by manipulating him, embarrassing him, shaming him. What does God do instead? God acts. He initiates. He moves forward. He's not passive. He's not hands off in his world. But he moves toward not Abraham, but toward Abimelech in order to set things right. And you recognize how quickly he's acting here. And, and, and it's a contrast to Abraham. Abraham's had more than enough time to act and doesn't. God doesn't waste any time. 
We learn in verses 4 and 6 that he confronts Abimelech before Abimelech even can touch Sarah. God's more involved in Abraham's life than Abraham is, which is very hopeful for my heart. It should be for yours also. It means that God's more involved in your life than you are as well. And he's invested in his people's lives even when we make a mess out of our lives, even when we ruin our lives. He's invested in them in order to give us a better life than we would give to ourselves. But look at what God does with Abimelech, and it tells you something more about who he is. God goes and he talks to Abimelech. Very important in this context where Abraham is supposed to be a prophet for God. God goes and he speaks to Abimelech, but he doesn't go and talk about himself. He goes and he talks about whom? Talks about Abraham. He goes and he represents Abraham to Abimelech, and he talks about what's in Abraham's best interests. And you realize God's not invested here because he needs Sarah back. He's invested here because Abraham needs Sarah back. And so God has taken and thrown everything up in the air. Where Abraham is supposed to represent God by what he says and hasn't, God goes and he speaks in such a way to represent Abraham. He becomes, in effect, Abraham's prophet. And you see his humility. You see his love. You see his care. It's the same kind of love and care that he has for you. He doesn't go to Abraham and, and replace him. He remains committed to his person, even though this person's been faithless, even though this person has not carried through on what he should have done. And so God goes and he speaks up for Abraham's sake in order to make Abraham's life better. This is a God who cares for people when they don't deserve it. This is the same God that you can trust to care for you, a God who will not hold your failures against you, a God who acts even when you're not right to make your life better than you would choose for yourself. Now, you need to be careful that you don't hear better in the wrong way. He does not make Abraham's life easier. In fact, because God has spoken to Abimelech, Abraham's life's a little harder. Because God goes and speaks to Abimelech, Abraham now has to go and speak to Abimelech. And he's going to have a very difficult conversation with Abimelech, one where he has to own the kinds of things that he's done and own the reasons for why he's done them. And he has to confess. That, that, that could not have been an easy conversation. It was not easy when I went to my professor and told him that I had lied about how much of the reading that I'd done. It's not easy, but it's good. And it was good for Abraham. What is it that makes that good? Because in that moment, you're deciding, no, I really do want to represent this God. I really want to speak honestly about what the world is like. Here's what the world is like. I have lied. I've deceived. I've manipulated. And in that moment, when Abraham says those things, he's retaking his place as an image of God. He is now speaking honestly and openly about the world and the way the world is. He's no longer trying to hide things. So what do you learn here about God? God enters into the failures of his people's lives in order to give them the opportunity to represent him, in order to give them the opportunity to take back what they threw away. In fact, as you go through the scripture, you see this over and over and over again. God always makes a way for his people to live righteously even after they've been faithless. There's always some way of entering in 
and doing something that is honorable, that is integral, that is uh, congruent with who God is. In other words, when you see yourself fail, there's no reason to be hopeless if God's involved. There's no reason to be hopeless, and there's no reason to be apathetic either. God does not work hard in your life to leave you stuck in a bad place. He enters into your life not so that it sort of glosses everything over and now we're okay, but in order to help you get back into that place that he has for you. He's carved out an individual place in this world for each one of you to represent him, a place that nobody else can fill. And he will be at work in your life in order for what? For you to take that place that shows him to the people around you. In other words, God does more than simply forgive Abraham. He doesn't come to Abimelech and tell him to return Sarah and then everything's going to be okay after that. Instead, Abimelech needs something. He needs Abraham to pray for him. God enters into the mess that Abraham has made when he decides that I don't want to be a blessing to Abimelech, I'll lie to him. And by God's involvement, Abraham now has to be a blessing. God has restored that role to him. God's not coming to Abraham and saying, okay, I get it. It, it, this is just too much for you. Just sit back and I'll take it from here. Instead, God involved himself so that Abraham takes back his rightful place on this earth. He is now the prophet. He's the same prophet now as he prays for Abimelech that he was back in chapter 18 when he prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Abraham's role, to intercede on behalf of the people around him with God. In other words, God's not going to enter into your life so that you stay where you are. He enters into your life so that you can be where you are supposed to be, to where you need to be. And you can expect God to do that throughout your entire life. At this point, Abraham has walked with the Lord for at least 25 years. And he's learning there are still things that he has to learn about living out his faith. That means you and I can expect that we're going to continue to grow in living out our faith as well. And we can continue to expect that this God's going to enter into our lives, not so that we can keep being faithless, but so that we can be restored back to that place that he has for us. Let me give you an illustration. Earlier this month, the Federal Trade Commission reported that millennials are reporting that they've been scammed more often than people who are older. That people in their 20s and 30s are saying, are, are saying they've been scammed, taken advantage of, more often than people who are 40 and above. And apparently a lot of that starts online with an email. So let's say you know one of these people and they tell you, yeah, I, I clicked on something that I shouldn't have. I sent my personal information to someone, they ripped me off, they emptied my bank account, and now I don't have rent for this month. And you know this person, you like this person, their story goes to your heart, and, and you want to do something for them. And so you say to them, you know what, I, I've got extra this month, and, and, and I'd love to be able to cover your month's rent for you. Would, would that be okay? And they look at you and they say, really? That, that'd be so cool. Thank you. That's really gracious of you. And then you get together with them later on in the week, and you discover that they have done exactly the same thing again, that they have gotten an email, somebody saying, hey, I just won the lottery, and I want to distribute to this to everybody, and, and just send me your bank account. And so they did. And they've had their bank account emptied again. You look at them and say, why did you do that? And they say to you, well, you gave me grace. You brought me back to this place where I didn't have a loss. And so I figured now that I'm back to even, I can try again. You would look at that person and say, I don't think you understand the purpose of grace. 
I don't think you understand what grace is. I don't think you understand why God gives grace or why I've given grace. Grace is not permission. It's not permission. Go dig a new hole so that somebody can rescue you out of it again. Real grace enters into your world. Why? To forgive you, absolutely. But to forgive you so that what? So that it can reorient you to who you were supposed to be in the first place. Or run it a little bit differently. Suppose you're going down a road, you make the wrong turn. And you should have not made that turn. You should be on the road in the first place. What does grace do? Grace comes along and it forgives you. It says, you've misrepresented God in that wrong turn. You have hurt other people. That was not good, but there, uh, the, the debt is cleared. That's one thing that grace does. Here's the second that it does. It puts you back on the road where you're supposed to be. And it teaches you how to stay on that road. Staying on that road does not get you grace. It goes the other way around. When you've been given grace, it puts you on that road and it gives you a desire in order to stay on that road. Restoration and forgiveness, they always come together. Say it a little bit differently. There's a purpose behind grace. It's to reorient you so that you do represent God. So if you only have one of these, guess what? You're, you're not experiencing real grace because real grace is both and. It's both faithfulness to people by God who have messed up their lives, but it's faithfulness for a purpose, to restore, to put you back as that image of God that he made you to be. I understand that real grace is not immediate. I know it's not quick. It's not quick in my life. I know that there are ups and downs after that. But this is what real grace does. You see it in the life of Abraham. So how can you tell then when you've got the real thing, when you're not fooling yourself? Three things maybe that I think you see here. Number one, you get this sense that you are here for a purpose. You start to have this internal idea that, that you're not here just to go along with the flow, not just here to see how much you can get for yourself, but you start to have this deeper inside conviction that I'm here to represent God. That as I rub shoulders with my coworkers, as I go home, as I'm with my, my roommates, my family, I, I actually want them to have a sense of what it's like to be in the presence of God, to have a sense of what he values. You may not know how to do that, but grace does what? It puts a hunger inside of you. It says, I want more in this life. I'm not okay with just going to work, going to school, coming home, and relaxing all night long. I want to take my place in this world that God has for me. I want to be an image of his. It's how it starts, this growing desire. Grace also does something else. It starts making you aware of the things that have kept you from actually wanting to take your place in this world. It draws your attention to why you haven't been taking place. It draws your attention to those other things that you've been afraid, man, I, I don't know if I can live without them. Because if I don't have those things, I don't think that the world will be satisfying. I don't think I'll be as happy as I ever would be otherwise. And grace comes along and it starts showing you those things are not good. They're, 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 they're not your best desires. They're ugly. It starts giving you a desire to go and talk with the Lord about them. Maybe even, Lord, I, I still want to hang on to this, but I know you're pointing it out for a reason. Let me see the reason. Or, God, I, I need you to, to uncurl my fingers from this thing a little bit more. 
Grace gives you a desire inside for something better. It starts showing you the things that have kept you from that better. And then thirdly, grace comes along and gives you new ways of living. It starts helping you see this is what it means to actually live in God's world as his representative. These are the kinds of things you'll say. These are the kinds of things you'll do. You come across things in scripture that you think you never saw before. You think, okay, this is how I need to live. Or you start opening your life up to other people, inviting them in. They start giving you different suggestions, and you actually follow them. And you start this fumbling, halting kind of way of living a life that starts to impact other people. If you're not seeing those three things come together, a desire to represent God, a hatred of what's kept you from representing him, and actual action steps, if you're not seeing those three things come together, you ought to start provoking different questions in your mind. You ought to start asking, have I received grace? I thought grace was just forgiveness, but if I don't have this desire for restoration, did I really get the real thing? If that's part of the question that you have, what, what, what's the answer? The answer is not try harder. The answer is go back to God and say, I need real grace. I need real grace that moves my heart to want something bigger. Or maybe you start to think, well, you know, I, I have received that, but, but I've been resisting it. I've been pushing down that rising sense that there is more to this life, and I've been pushing down because I, I just don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to stand out. So I push that down. Or I've been resistant to repenting uh, for these other things that, that I know God's not happy with because I, I just really want them, and, and I'm not sure what life would look like without them. Or I've not... I've been pushing down the, the, the nudges that the Spirit gives me to do different things because I, I just want this to happen naturally, just to be sort of organic and, and just to happen. I don't want to put a lot of work and effort into that. That's uncomfortable. It takes too much effort. If that's the case, and the Spirit of God is at work in you, work with Him. You're not saving yourself. Again, what do you see God do? God steps into the mess that Abraham makes, but He steps in to open a door. And having done that, it's Abraham now who has to actually walk through the door. This is what God does in people's lives. This is how God's people respond to him. But maybe you say to me, okay, you know, that's great if you're Abraham. It's wonderful that God would enter into the mess that he made of his life. But what if you're not as special as Abraham? I mean, God appears to him. God gives him these incredible promises. I may have done the same things that Abraham did, but I'm not Abraham, and I know that. That's when you look past Abraham, and you realize that the promise to Abraham is that one will come who will bless all the nations, and you look to Jesus. You recognize that Abraham, in chapter 20, proves he is not the new flawless Adam. That's why we never talk about Abraham as the second Adam. He's not the one who could perfectly represent God to us. He's not the one who would produce a new race of godly humans. But Jesus is. And that's why we do call him the second Adam. When you saw Jesus on this earth, you saw the perfect representation of who God was, is. When you saw Jesus act, you knew what God was like. When you saw, heard Jesus speak, you heard what God is like. He is the image of God. He represented God to us. But he's more than that. He's also the prophet beyond compare. 
the one who is well beyond Abraham. He represented us to God. He prayed for us. He prayed for his friends while he was on earth. He prayed that they would be able to overcome their temptations. He prayed in John chapter 17 that God would empower them to take their place on this earth as his representatives. And he prayed not just for them, but also for you. He goes on in that prayer in John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples who are in front of him, but I ask also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why is he praying this? What's the payoff? What's the purpose? It's that the world may believe. It's the world may see the effect that God has so that the world will know that Jesus is not a figment of our imagination, that he's not make-believe, that he's not made up. But as we live out that oneness, that one faith, one body, one church, as we come together and are united in love, it's a representation to the larger world of who God is. And so Jesus is praying back then that you would take the place that God has for you. It's what he gave his life for. It's what he rose for. So that the larger world would know that God enters into the mess of our lives to what? To restore us. So that we then represent him as we enter the mess of other people's lives. To tell them about this great God who loves them and who wants nothing but their best. Take a moment and pray together. Lord Jesus, we cannot move our own hearts. We don't have that power. Lord, in an instant, we can quickly sin against you. We can quickly misrepresent you. We don't have the power to change ourselves. And so we come to you. I 